This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Welcome to the MCU Lorecast. My name is Captain Shanko, and this is my host, Psych88. Hello. It has been a long road to get here, but we are thrilled to finally be recording and bringing episode one. And today we'll be talking about the first X-Men movie directed by Brian Singer. And this released 22 years ago, in back in good old 2000. <laughs> Oh my god. What were you For doing? In, what were you doing in 2000? I was 2. Uh oh, okay. I was uh 12. So going into junior high? Yeah. All right. Uh um, yeah. So, you got into and before we even jump into yeah. any analysis, this is not a spoiler-free zone. We are going to be covering the major plot points, scenes, characters, potential spoilers for anyone that hasn't seen a film that came out 22 years ago. Uh, so if you're looking for the spoiler-free zone or spoiler-free analysis review, this is not the show for you. Uh, but we're going to do our best to bring you some good points, some new topics to think about, and maybe some new perspectives that maybe you hadn't considered before. Yeah, yeah. We're we'll be taking a very in-depth analysis look at at all the MC, MCU movies and uh, so, you know, that spoiler free is going to go for a movie released 22 years ago. It's going to go for from this date a movie released 2 years ago. Um So yeah, just keep that in mind as we as we move forward here. Um, maybe just a little bit about ourselves real quick. Um, so, like, I got into comics about 2000, right? Uh, not because of this movie, but just happened to be an interest in science fiction in general. Um, and since then, I've invested just as much into my comic book library as, as my education. <laughs> What about you, Captain? What, how did you get into this? <clears throat> I mean, I think like a lot of people that'll find this show, I started enjoying superhero media at a young age, just watching the cartoon shows that come on TV. Um, and it was a form of entertainment that, you know, your most parents are going to go, oh, okay, it's just, you know, it's it's Superman, it's Spider-Man, it's, it's fine, it's for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it came from there, but I did hang out, I started hanging out at a comic shop in my town when I was a teenager, you know, older teenager, 16, 17, and found my people there. Uh, everyone was super nice, I enjoyed spending time there, and through that, uh, you know, we would go 
to the midnight premieres of all the new superhero movies coming out. I would collect comics. I still, you know, have a bunch of my comics from that era, and I still do collect a little Mm -hmm. bit. Not to the scale that I used to, but definitely still an interest. And I think the thing that mostly changed my perspective on superhero movies was The Avengers back in 2012. Uh, A film like it had not really been attempted before, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted to learn more. And now I'm here 10 years after The Avengers came out starting a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. 10 years ago. Jeez. All right. <laughs> All right. So we are starting with X Men One. Um, Shenko, give us a brief plot breakdown, and then we can talk about uh, how those archetypes work together. All right. So I think it's worth noting, and we'll get more in depth into the history a little bit later in the show. X Men has for me at least, always really been a reflection of of the times and what what's going on socially and economically in, you know, in, in America. It uh-huh. is a kind of a social commentary on politics or policies, and I've always appreciated that they never shied away from it. Uh, right at the beginning of the movie, we get to see 1944, Poland, during the World War II Nazi occupation. Uh, So right off rip, we are presented with Eric Lencher, who later goes on to become Magneto. And he's ripped away from his family. It's dark. It's not a good time for anyone. And as the movie goes on later to explain, mutant powers develop at adolescence or at a moment of heightened emotional distress and uh, mm-hmm. this is when his power comes to comes to light he reaches out for his family bends the metal gate and then is instantly kind of put down by the guards that are surrounding him uh, he's experimented on it's impl- heavily implied at least in this film that he's uh, been experimented on uh, because of his mutation uh, we also get to see the origin of the character of Rogue. Again, teenage girl, she's having her first kiss with her high school sweetheart. She kisses him, her power manifests, and she puts him into a three-week coma. And that's fairly emotionally traumatizing, I would, I would think. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> let, me just, let me just kiss my boyfriend. Oh, crap, I almost killed him? Yeah. And then that makes her touch to any uh, living creature um, uh, just as dangerous. As it's not, because it's not just through kiss, it's just straight up through skin contact. Mm-hmm. She gets memories and senses. And I, I think they mentioned it a little bit. She just wanted to know what he was thinking when she was kissing him. And that's what kind of triggered her mutation to absorb his thoughts and memories through skin contact. It also just happened to, you know, drain his life while I was at it. Whoops. <laughs> Oops. Um, 
we then get to see Jean Grey, who is older. She's been learning how to control her powers. She's had a positive environment to learn about that control. And she's speaking to the Senate about the Mutant Registration Act. And this Mutant Registration Act is kind of the centerline focus and the main issue that all of these characters are are fighting about, more or less. Um, She goes to speak to the Senate, trying to urge them not to pass the legislation for these laws because it'll marginalize a portion of the population and open up avenues for the spread of hatred and misunderstanding. And then you've got Robert, Senator Robert Kelly. He stands up and is like, they, they subtly establish he's kind of a, not, he's not a great guy because he ignores her, her title. She's, she's got a doctorate, so she's Dr. Jean Grey, but he, he's always, but Miss Grey, but Miss Grey. Like, uh, it's, it's a very subtle way to just give a, you know, giant middle finger to somebody, especially someone you don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and he pulls a McCarthyan act. He says, I have a list here of a hundred names of mutants. I've got one girl here. She can walk through walls. What's going to stop her from walking into a bank? And it'd be like, well, you know, uh, what stops me from walking into a bank and robbing it, right? Like, just not being a horrible person, usually, is... <laughs> She, Jean Grey is basically saying anyone has the potential to be dangerous and it's unfair to marginalize mutants for being dangerous when, you know, it's probably safe to say that most mutants just want to go through their life peacefully, the same as anyone else. Um, And he's using fear mongering in order to get legislation passed that will make it harder for those people to just go about their daily lives. Yeah, and then and then what this scene kind of caps on is it brings us back to uh, Magneto. It, it also brings in Professor Xavier, and it brings us to a conversation they're having of you know they're still learning from, and that's from Xavier's perspective. But from Magneto's perspective, he's all yeah, I saw what they did this the last time. I know how this ends, and so. Maybe we shouldn't let them do it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's kind of how... <clears throat> within the first ten minutes, the movie establishes our central conflict, our major player, for the most part our major players, and our sympathetic villain for a change. Uh, that Magneto's not going to do this because just because it's evil. He's going to do it because... He doesn't want more people to suffer the same life he had. And that's a very fine line to do, especially with a with a Jewish character. Because you don't want it steeped in anti-Semitic tropes or, or anything. And so it's very important to establish that this guy has been hurt by the state. And he is watching a new state do the exact same thing. He doesn't want to see history repeat itself. So while yeah. his, while the method that he chooses to accomplish what he feels is the needed end goal of getting rid of humanity because they're going to get rid of us, it's not necessarily unjustified. 
And that's one thing I've always liked about Magneto is that he's been, while he has radical and maybe extreme ways of going about things, he's never been wrong. Yeah. Uh. So, I mean, um, you know, the rest of the movie, you know, follows that through, right? We get established, uh, we get more establishing parts with our, with my least favorite character, Wolverine. Uh, we get to meet the X-Men. Finally, it takes like 15 minutes to get to the X-Men, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you do gotta lay that foundational work. You can't just hop into a training seminar at the Xavier Institute or something. There, there's no groundwork established. You have to so, establish the world that they're living in and the characters yes. they're in and what their motivations are and where they are coming from. Yep. Um, anyway, so from from that... Yeah, it, it plays out, you know, like your, I'm going to say like the rest of the action movies. Heroes fight, heroes go through a tr- tremendous uh, act two loss, and a great act three finale. Um, along the way, uh, Robert Kelly gets turned into a mutant uh, on purpose, uh, but he dies from his exposures. Uh, which is, and we'll get into it later, it's something of a hallmark to his character in the comic books. Um, and I have to say, that scene gave me nightmares. And I was like 12 or 13 by then, by the time I saw this movie. And his turn into gloop water bit was... I mean, it's still kind of revolting to watch. No, it was now. hard to watch, even as a whole adult, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, um, you know the the practical in CGI's of this movie stand up pretty well, even twenty two years later. Like overall, uh, yeah. I think we can, definitely. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the one of the scenes that sticks out is that fight scene towards the beginning, where Wolverine mm. is cage fighting at a CD trucker bar. After the fights, he's confronted by his opponent, who he beat, and he pops the claws out, but only the two on the one hand. Right, and then and then that center claw kind of just slowly comes up and just just tickles the Adam's apple of the of the dude, and it, you know it's a sign that Wolverine's not the mindless animal that um everyone likes to paint him out to be you know he has rage that's for certain but he has it he has it under control or at least some semblance of control yeah he's he's able to not completely fly off the handle even when he is enraged i mean the guy almost stabbed him with a knife and then the bartender pulls a gun on him and I would say the best case scenario is what happened. The gun getting sliced in half and him dipping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because once you've got, you know, six knives that don't come off your hands uh, and you are made out of indestructible skeleton and a pretty good healing factor, uh, a bar full of drunk patrons and one bar owner with 
with a loaded up with some buckshot is just not a threat. It's gonna hurt. You're not gonna like it. But you're walking out. The day. But you're gonna walk out of that. Uh. So yeah, him just. All right, I'm leaving. I'm not gonna pay my tab because you know. <laughs> you're kind of you're kind of throwing me out. So whatever. But anyway, um. What what else you got for the like synopsis? Check out. So this film, like we said, it, it dropped in two thousand, and it is chronologically, as far as release dates going, one of the oldest in the MCU that we're that we're covering. It's the first film uh, that we are gonna go through, and I think this was one of those stepping stones, right where superhero media was seen as campy and silly Mm -hmm. for kids very geared towards kids this i feel was one of those films where superhero movies grew up a little bit it was dark it was violent it had some very uncomfortable moments and it also did not shy away from political commentary um and that was something very different for the time, especially. I mean, this is like we were saying, it was the early 2000s. Uh, and a film like this, especially focusing on superheroes and then also with kind of the beginnings of uh, the, the more modern CGI and also mm-hmm. towing the lines of practical effects as well, was revolutionary. It was different. Uh, and I feel like this was also one of those films that brought an awful lot of people into enjoying comic book media. I, I mean, it was certainly one of the first films that I remember experiencing as a kid. I was very young when this one came out, and I definitely didn't see it at release. But I always remembered seeing reruns on, you know, Fox or, yeah. you know, whatever. And I remember, I can't remember the first time I saw the movie in its completion, but it's always been familiar, so I know it it was early. And I think it definitely set the bar fairly high, because despite, you know, maybe one or two kind of campy, weird scenes and the awkward sexual tension between Jean Grey and, and Logan... While yeah. that's well established in the comics, I don't think it was handled the best. No, <laughs> it was not. That I mean, <clears throat> that was some heavy-handed stuff uh, between Wolverine, Jean Grey, and Cyclops. It, like they they wanted it in there so badly, they didn't like oddly for a movie that went through the pains of establishing a framework and foundation. They didn't do that for the. Uh, relationships between people. I mean, yeah, we got that between Xavier and Magneto, sure, but they just they just kind of like, oh yeah, Wolverine doesn't like Cyclops, so automatically he doesn't like him. Even though, in the movie, right up until Cyclops is there to shake his hand, the only interaction they've had is Cyclops pulling his ass out of a fire. That's it. And then, But Wolverine's all, oh, you're a you know, you're a Boy Scout or whatever. Like, you know, like that's a bad thing. Like, it's like oh you're God. you're a good guy that saved my life, but I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just like, 
yeah, okay. Yeah, you're. I know you're supposed to not like him eventually, but... There was no lead-up. Yeah, let's give yeah, us a lead-up. The hatred was instantaneous. Yes. But I think this one did give us uh, some of our most iconic portrayals of these characters. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, like, up until No Way Home, uh, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart would go on to have the longest career in a single comic book character. Um, like, uh, yeah, I'm saying that. I'm saying that stiltedly and wrong, but they played those characters the longest in recorded uh, history for everything. People immediately like latched on to Hugh Jackman and the rest of the cast as these characters. They did a fantastic job of bringing these characters to life. Even uh, even uh, Halle Berry did a great job as Storm, even though she wasn't utilized she, nearly as much. Criminally as she, underused. For sure. Yeah, as she should have been for this first one. Like they, they do a better job of it later. Uh, you know, she's she gets more scenes, she gets more dialogue in in the others. But in this one, it's unfortunately Storm kind of is a regulated to messenger. Like her her big stuff is telling people, "Hey, the senator died," or um, some uh, a terrible joke. Like that's. That's unfortunately the big, the big parts for her role in this movie. They also did end up recasting several of the characters in later films, but that is a discussion yeah, for another time. That's a yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but I think this this film did a good job bringing the base X Men team as well as the Brotherhood of Mutants, one of their main characters in their rogues gallery, um, to the, you know, to the big screen. And it, and it did a pretty good job, I feel, not necessarily as a, as a direct transcript from the comics into film, but I think it was an appropriate viewing, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Uh, there were probably thousands of ways to do this wrong, and what they ended up with was what I think they needed to, where they needed to go. And it definitely yeah. gave a reasonable foundation to then progress into how many other X-Men movies and, and branch-offs? <sighs> um, seven, eight other X-Men movies? Over the span of Some... 20 years? Oh, Yeah. But where did all of them come from and what were their origins? And that will be the topic of discussion after our mid-break. This is our mid-break where we do the non-podcast or non-information dump podcasty parts. First, we'd like to thank you for listening uh, as our first episode. This is monumental. Um, so we're, we're really appreciative of that, that you've taken the time to, to listen to our first episode here. Uh, this will be also where we will read off any five-star reviews we get on, on Apple. If you're listening to that, you can leave us a five-star review. And we'll read it out. 
on Spotify, you can just leave us a five star and that would be fantastic. That helps us out immensely. Um, Tell your friends, join the Discord. We're both fairly active on the Robots Radio Discord. Um, And then we'll also have our own our own segment on the robots radio podcast uh, or the robots radio network discord. We are also available on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have a Gmail that we can answer any questions or discussion topics from as well. And that's going to be MCU Lorecast at gmail.com. Yep. And at MCU Lorecast on Twitter. I think we're just at MCU Lorecast across the board on most platforms (laughs) for simplicity's sake. And because it was luckily available on all the platforms and I snatched them. There was that. That's, yeah, that's the fantastic part. Um, We also have a couple thank yous. Yep. Uh, First and foremost, I think we need to thank uh, Tom robots, Tom or robots on the robots radio network. Um, He, runs the rocket club and hosts the network as well and gave us a really great space and opportunity to put a show on the air indeed i think we also definitely need to thank the hosts of the two girls one ship podcast uh genesis and vervada if you are listening thank you thank you so much Um, They have both been incredibly supportive and helpful when it came to starting this show. And they're actually the ones that introduced me to my co-host, Syke. (laughs) Yeah. uh, yeah. In all honesty, the show wouldn't exist without uh, without their involvement. Um, I, I think that, so it just goes, no, it goes with saying thank you. So now we talk about the history, and this is Sykes' wheelhouse. This is what he is bringing to the show, because while I enjoy the comics, most of my experience and most of my commentary is going to be about the films. Yes, so... um, Alright, let's get into it. So, with this one being a first one, we gotta go through... Like kind of an introduction of everybody. And we won't have to do this for every single one. I'll be able to finally just be like, okay, so the villain for this one came from. But as getting started here, we're in for the long haul. So, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in September 1963. That's, like, that was a, for all of us, (laughs) that was a monumental undertaking, is the creation of the X-Men as a comic book in of itself um it's reported he started the x-men because he was tired of coming up with backstories for all these characters and so he just wanted a simplified way to grant superpowers to people and voila mutation uh kind of kind of out of the fears of the uh atomic age you know because you know, from at 1963, the dropping of the bombs wasn't even 20 years old. And so people at the time uh, generally were a little worried about, okay, what's all this radiation going to do to us? Uh, 
And so he kind of capitalized on that to create mutations. Now, did that story kind of get changed over time? Yes. But uh, for, for the first go-around, the mutants are the children of the atom. And you'll hear that or you'll have seen that on something uh, X-Men related specifically at some point. So that's where that kind of comes from is the fear of radiation mutation damage. Um, so now our first instances of these characters. X-Men number one stars Cyclops, Jean Grey, Iceman, Xavier, and Magneto. Now, yes, it stars other characters, but the ones that were introduced in this movie came from X-Men number one here. Uh, Toad wasn't introduced until X-Men number four. So we didn't really even get to see Magneto's, like, brotherhood of mutants until a, a little bit later. Now, the funny thing about this is this run of X-Men ends in March 1970. And after that, they just issued reprints. So, uh, and this was due to kind of like flagging, uh, flagging sales. It, just, it wasn't doing particularly hot. So it just stopped creating new stories. It could have ended. That could have been the end of all of this. And the X-Men would have been shelved off as a D-list superhero team never to see the light again. What changed? Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully that didn't happen. What changed was uh, Giant Size X-Men number one uh, by Lean Wynn and David Cockrum. Uh, it starred a more international team. It was much more about diversity because that was a problem with the first X-Men. It was on your good guy's side, you had six white people, one in, one in a wheelchair. Like, as inclusivity goes, one disabled character and a bunch of white people, you know, doesn't, it doesn't fly the same way anymore these days, right? Where's the flavor? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Giant Size X-Men number one is all kinds of flavor. Uh, introduces characters from all over the world, but from this movie, it is Storm and Wolverine. And that was May 1975. Um, as for the rest of our X-Men, we get Rogue from Avengers Annual Number 10 by Chris Claremont and Michael Golden. All the way, now we're into the 80s. She isn't introduced until 1981. Um... And her history as a comic book character is like kind of complicated. She starts as a villain. She was part of the Brotherhood. She's one of Mystique's people. And is later redeemed and moves over into the X-Men. And that they kind of play on that in the movie. Uh, you know, she gets kidnapped and is used as part of Magneto's plans to uh, change everyone into mutants. Because he's not going to sacrifice himself for the for his cause here, right? Um, so they kind of they kind of twisted that history into she's an unwilling participant in the Brotherhood's plans here, which was really good, at least in my opinion. Um, and in case anyone's wondering, I, I forgot to kind of mention this, but uh, like Iceman played like four whole scenes in the movie so if you're wondering like wait when did i see a guy made of ice like he's the guy who freezes that fireball 
And that's the only like indication that you know who he is and what he can do. And he doesn't do anything else in that movie as Iceman. Now, we don't really see Iceman uh, for a while. Not not yeah. using his powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for our villains, um, Sabretooth, he's actually introduced in uh, Iron Fist number 14 by Chris Claremont and John Bryan in 1977. Um, now, I've not read that one, so I'm not exactly certain as to, like, why or what he's doing in an Iron Fist comic, but that's where he's first brought in. And later, he gets used for all other mutant activities, including things like uh, the mutant massacre of the Morlocks um, and other other things. And then uh, Mystique is introduced in uh, Miss Marvel number 18. Uh, also 16, but that one's a cameo. So truly, she's firmly established in number 18 by also Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum in 1978. And in case anyone's confused right now as to the Miss Marvel bit, we will definitely get into it when we talk Captain Marvel. That's a whole different can of worms right now. Uh, and then finally is our last antagonist, uh, Senator John Kelly. He's introduced in Uncanny X-Men number 135 by Claremont and Bryan in 1980. Uh, as for kind of what may have uh, been an establishing factor for the X-Men, like things that were going on at the time were the civil rights movement. Uh, you had Vietnam uh, and you had Kennedy. He, he was uh, president. Um, Stan Lee is, is remarked as saying that he heavily uh, pulled from both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. for Magneto and Xavier, respectively. Working so, towards the same goal with very, very different methods. Exactly. And, and so, you know, yeah. Um, actually, that's really all I've got. Um, any, did you want to have some final thoughts, Captain? Cap, did I lose you? No, I'm still here. I'm oh. going through my <laughs> head. <laughs> okay. We've covered an awful lot of history and an awful lot of characters. Um, mm -hmm. And like you said, I think once we've got a couple episodes downrange, we might uh, have less of the world building and more of the new stuff to analyze. Um. Were there any instances where you felt that the source material was disrespected in in uh, in the making of the film? Ah, uh, mm. well, we 
We talked about the Wolverine Cyclops, Jean Grey. That one was a rushed, but I wouldn't say it was uh, been disrespected. Uh, we talked about Storm's underutilization in the movie. That might be one of the graver offenses is just her her underutilization. Um, and was there any part of you that really wanted to see the yellow spandex? Uh, as more than a throw, as more of a throwaway, as more than a throwaway line. You know, no. Um, <laughs> I really liked. I, I thought their costuming was much more practical than spandex tights and colorful costuming. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's I, a power under the sun that would have gotten Hugh Jackman into that stripy yellow and blue suit from the comics. <laughs> Uh, you know, but you know what? I think he—he's a theater guy, so maybe. Yeah, I think he. I think he would have. I—I I, I genuinely think he would have given it a, a go if that was the case. But as as we were saying earlier, this movie—the movie is just more adult. It treats its content with more. Um, I'm not uh, with. It, it, not just content, it treats its audience like, okay, you're not just here for some campy one-liners and terrible costuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we were still reeling, really, the entire superhero genre was reeling from uh, Schumacher's Batman and Robin, right? Mm-hmm. That movie probably did more damage to superhero genre movies than any other of its kind. I think it it probably made a lot of directors a little gun shy about um, going into a superhero movie because they are prob- they probably felt very shoehorned into um, let's make this comedic campy thing, and this is how superhero movies are. You know, they're not mm-hmm. serious, they're not adult. They're the audience is very twelve and under, and there's maybe not. A bigger audience than that. Yeah, um, and so. you can't you can't treat these ideas of of you know registration registration with the government uh, of 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 civil liberties being repressed uh, and oppressed. You can't do that and do that in camp, right? Uh, so you got in treating the that material with an adult's eye and an adult's critical thinking, your costuming being all bright yellow spandex and and utility pouches made out of or utility belts made out of pouches, it it just is a a disconnect that doesn't go together. It's like uh, orange juice and toothpaste. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it's do they bring about the comic book costumes later? I I think so at some point, but for a movie for what the, for what singer was trying to make the, the all black leather suits that actually look like they'll protect you somewhat made more sense than the, than, than the comic book costuming. And then did you, I don't know if it's maybe not something we were aware of or maybe it just was read as a modernization, but when the films started to come out, what 
were they doing in response with the comics themselves? Because I know with some of the content that was being released when I was getting more into it and I was at the comic shops, I did notice that there was a lot of crossover um, or special editions where they would highlight something maybe a bit more movie related or they would change the costumes in the comics to reflect what's being seen on the screen. And do you think that that was helpful or harmful for comics? Uh, Actually, I believe that was helpful. Um, Because the 90s were, especially the early 90s for comics, you were, we were coming kind of out of a, it's actually considered kind of the dark ages. So we were coming out of that, um, which also helped a lot. Uh, but uh, it was Grant Morrison's run on uh, New X-Men is where you saw the black leather jackets um, with like the big yellow X's and stuff. And it's really where they started taking uh, some of their, they started taking, I feel like, the stories seriously again. Um because uh, his run included uh, included a lot of commentary, and also like there's a redemption arc for uh, for a character called Emma Frost, um, and it was also adult in its content because they do some some dumb stuff with Cyclops that I'm just like really, but whatever. Um, also at that time was the release of the ultimate line of uh, uh, of comics and it's a sep- it was a separate universe fresh off the you know fresh off the cart kind of ideas of complete completely new modernization you know all these stories now told post 2000 which helped a lot of characters uh, and updated them and also kind of hurt some other like well-established characters. Um, we'll, we can t- discuss it when we get to Captain America, but his ultimate version is kind of a dick. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a meme. There's always a meme somewhere, but uh, does this A stand for France kind of stuff? They thought they were being witty with the political commentary there. It's, it's not. It's just American stupidity at its finest mm-hmm. um <laughs> gonna, uh, we're gonna get so much um anyway yeah maybe we should probably put at the beginning of this that there's not just spoilers but uh we're going to talk about some real issues here and you're probably not going to agree with me on everything <laughs> we are not going to be a show that shies away from political commentary but that being said we're not going to try to be super over the top with it. Um, yeah. We definitely have our opinions, and I do think that for the most part, Psych and I are on the same page about that, which is why uh, this format is going to work. <laughs> it'll, it'll end up working out. Um, because, uh, oh boy, wouldn't it be fun if we just vastly differ- disagreed on politics? <laughs> oh, man. It's like, on this episode uh... of the MCU Lorecast, Psych and Captain Shanko are going to have a fist fight. <laughs> oh oh that yeah that'd have been that'd be something i'm sure um 
But no, if, so, if yeah, there was if there I, was I, a, a major political thing that was happening that ended up affecting media, as things often do, it's not going to be let's let's tiptoe around it. No, let's let's dissect right. it. Let's get in there. Let's yeah. find out why this bothers people. Yeah, we got like art is a reflection of the human condition or human nature, however that phrase is said, right? And that includes the things that are happening to us. Um, theater is a meter uh, is a mirror of our re- reality, that kind of stuff. Um, so, comic books and comic books are a, an underlying like commentary of stuff. Movies are the big bold neon lights. Hey, let's look at this issue. Yeah. So, uh that's I that's all I've got, Captain. How about you? I think that's all I've got too. Uh but right. this has been fun and <laughs> I'm excited to see where this show can go in the future and down the line. Uh and I'm really really looking forward to looking into more films and and getting the the analysis and having more fight scenes to break down because that that is one thing the fight scenes in, in this in in this film in particular they're just they were brief or they were um quick you know they they, they went by yeah. pretty quick and there wasn't a whole lot to to say other than okay wolverine beat the crap out of the guy in like three and a half seconds um but yeah, I, I think the other, there's going to be more meat to dig into it at some point. Because the other big fight is at the end between Wolverine and Sabretooth atop mm-hmm. the, the Liberty statue. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, that one is pretty quick. It's got, out of all the CGI, that's the one that really stands out the most now of like, yeah, that probably doesn't happen <laughs> when he uses his claw like around one of the uh, points on her crown to <sighs> stay on the head. And it's just like... It's like, that's not physics how physics works. doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, no, There's there was some weird stuff that. going on with the physics in, in, in the moment with the, the big spinny thing on top of the, you know, on top of the Statue of Liberty. But no, like, we can't break physics. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have the same feelings about Captain America's shield in every single film, even though I absolutely love Captain America. That thing, as Spider-Man said, does not obey the laws of physics. No, no, it does not. All right. I believe that is all we have for you today. Again, we thank you for joining us on this great first episode. Uh, Next week will be X-Men 2. So uh, we'll be keeping with the mutants for a little while. Um, And that's, that's all I've got. That's all I've got too. But this was, this was really fun. So I'm looking forward to next week and we hope that everyone that tuned in this week is going to come back and see us again next week for X-Men 2. Until then, stay safe, everybody. See ya. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, 
for hosting and mentoring. In Seven Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration, Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us, Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork, Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music, our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this, and you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And to quote Stan the Man, enough said. Are you a fan of Elden Ring? Are you confused about the lore as pretty much everyone else? We've got you covered. Check out the Elden Archives, a lore podcast that helps to explain every little confusing detail about the lands between. Things like what exactly happened on the Night of the Black Knives, or what we really know about characters like Nicola. Just like the show you're listening to now, we're on the Robots Radio Network, so you know it'll be good. Wondering how to find the show? Easy. Either go to robotsradio.net or search Elden Archives on whatever podcatcher you're using right now. Bookmark the show for later, and we'll see you in the lands between. Again, that's The Elden Archives, a FromSoft Lorecast, available everywhere.